Chapter Nineteen of the Flirt by Booth Tarkington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memory, that drowsy custodian, had wakened slowly during this hour, beginning the process with fitful gleams of semi-consciousness, then irritated, searching its pockets for the keys and dazedly exploring blind passages but now it flung wide open the gallery doors and there in clear light were the rows of painted canvases he remembered that day when he was waiting for a car and laura madison had stopped for a moment and then had gone on saying she preferred to walk he remembered that after he got into the car he wondered why he had not walked home with her had thought himself slow for not thinking of it in time to do it there had seemed something very taking about her, as she stopped and spoke to him, something enlivening and wholesome and sweet. It had struck him that Laura was a very nice girl. He had never before noticed how really charming she could look. In fact, he had never thought much about either of the Madison sisters, who had become young ladies during his mourning for his brother. And this pleasant image of Laura remained with him for several days, until he decided that it might be a delightful thing to spend an evening with her. He had called, and he remembered now, Cora's saying to him, that he looked at her sometimes as if he did not like her. He had been surprised and astonishingly pleased to detect a mysterious feeling in her about it. He remembered that almost at once he had fallen in love with Cora. She captivated him, enraptured him, as she still did as she always would, he felt, no matter how she treated him or what she did to him. He did not analyze the process of the captivation and enrapturement, for love is a mystery and cannot be analyzed. This is so well known that even Richard Lindley knew it, and did not try. Heartsick, he stared at the fallen book. He was a man, and here was the proffered love of a woman he did not want. There was a pathos in the ledger, it seemed to grovel, sprawling and dishevelled in the circle of lamplight on the floor. It was as if Laura herself lay pleading at his feet, and he looked down upon her, compassionate but revolted. He realised with astonishment from what a height she had fallen, how greatly he had respected her, how warmly liked her. What she now destroyed had been more important than he had guessed. Simple masculine indignation rose within him. She was to have been his sister. If she had been unable to stifle this misplaced love of hers, could she not at least have kept it to herself? Laura, the self-respecting. No, she offered it. Offered it to her sister's betrothed. She had written that he should never, never know it. That when she was cured, she would burn the ledger. She had not burned it. There were inconsistencies in plenty in the pitiful screed, but these were the wildest and the cheapest. In talk she had urged him to keep trying for Cora, and now the sick-minded creature sent him this record. She wanted him to know. Then what else was it but a plea? I love you. Let Cora go. Take me. He began to walk up and down, wondering what was to be done. After a time he picked up the book gingerly, set it upon a shelf in a dark corner, and went for a walk outdoors. The night air seemed better than that of the room that held the ledger. At the corner a boy, running, passed him. 
It was Hedrick Madison. But Hedrick did not recognize Richard, nor was his mind at that moment concerned with Richard's affairs. He was on an errand of haste to Dr. Sloan. Mr. Madison had wakened from a heavy slumber, unable to speak, his condition obviously much worse. Hedrick returned in the doctor's car, and then hung uneasily about the door of the sick-room until Laura came out and told him to go to bed. In the morning his mother did not appear at the breakfast-table, Cora was serious and quiet, and Laura said that he need not go to school that day, though she added that the doctor thought their father would get better. She looked wan and hollow-eyed. She had not been to bed, but declared that she would rest after breakfast. Evidently she had not missed her ledger, and Hedrick watched her closely, a pleasurable excitement stirring in his breast. She did not go to her room after the meal. The house was cold, possessing no furnace, and, with Hedrick's assistance, she carried out the ashes from the library grate and built a fire there. She had just lighted it, and the kindling was beginning to crackle, glowing rosily over her tired face, when the bell rang. "'Will you see who it is, please, Hedrick?' He went with alacrity, and, returning, announced in an odd voice, "'It's Dick Lindley. He wants to see you.' "'Me?' she murmured, wanly surprised. She was kneeling before the fireplace, wearing an old dress which was dusted with ashes, and upon her hands a pair of worn-out gloves of her father's. Lindley appeared in the hall behind Hedrick, carrying under his arm something wrapped in brown paper. His expression led her to think that he had heard of her father's relapse, and came on that account. "'Don't look at me, Richard,' she said, smiling faintly as she rose, and stripping her hands of the clumsy gloves. "'It's good of you to come, though. Dr. Sloane thinks he is going to be better again.' Richard inclined his head gravely, but did not speak. "'Well,' said Hedrick, with a slight emphasis, "'I guess I'll go out in the yard a while.' And with shining eyes he left the room. In the hall, out of range from the library door, he executed a triumphant but noiseless caper, and doubled with mirth, clapping his hand over his mouth to stifle the effervescings of his joy. He had recognized the ledger in the same wrapping in which he had left it in Mrs. Lindley's vestibule. His moment had come, the climax of his enormous joke, the repayment in some small measure for the anguish he had so long endured. He crept silently back toward the door, flattened his back against the wall, and listened. "'Richard,' he heard Laura say, a vague alarm in her voice, "'what is it? What is the matter?' Then Lindley. "'I did not know what to do about it. I couldn't think of any sensible thing. I suppose what I am doing is the stupidest of all the things I thought of, but at least it's honest. So I've brought it back to you myself. Take it, please.' There was a crackling of the stiff wrapping paper, a little pause, then a strange sound from Laura. It was not vocal, and no more than just audible. It was a prolonged scream in a whisper. Hedrick ventured an eye at the crack, between the partly opened door and its casing. Lindley stood with his back to him, but the boy had a clear view of Laura. She was leaning against the wall, facing Richard, the book clutched in both arms against her bosom, the wrapping paper on the floor at her feet. 
I thought of sending it back and pretending to think it had been left at my mother's house by mistake,' said Richard, sadly, "'and of trying to make it seem that I hadn't read any of it. I thought of a dozen ways to pretend I believed you hadn't really meant me to read it.' Making a crucial effort, she managed to speak. "'You think I did mean—' "'Well,' he answered with a helpless shrug, "'you sent it.' but it's what's in it that really matters, isn't it? I could have pretended anything in a note, I suppose, if I had written instead of coming, but I found that what I most dreaded was meeting you again, and as we've got to meet, of course, it seemed to me the only thing to do was to blunder through a talk with you, somehow or another, and get that part of it over. I thought the longer I put off facing you, the worse it would be for both of us, and— and the more embarrassing. I'm no good at pretending anyhow, and the thing has happened. What use is there in not being honest? Well? She did not try to speak again. Her state was lamentable. It was all in her eyes. Richard hung his head wretchedly, turning partly away from her. There's only one way to look at it, he said hesitatingly, and stammering. That, that is there's only one thing to do, to forget that it's happened. I'm, I, oh, well, I care for Cora altogether. She's got never to know about this. She hasn't any idea or suspicion of it, has she? Laura managed to shake her head. She never must have, he said. Will you promise me to burn that book now? She nodded slowly. I, I'm awfully sorry, Laura, he said brokenly. I'm not idiot enough not to see that you're suffering horribly. I suppose I have done the most blundering thing possible. He stood a moment irresolute, then turned to the door. Goodbye. Hedrick had just time to dive into the hideous little room of the multitudinous owls as Richard strode into the hall. Then, with the closing of the front door, the boy was back at his post. Laura stood leaning against the wall, the book clutched in her arms, as Richard had left her. Slowly she began to sink, her eyes wide open, and with her back against the wall she slid down until she was sitting upon the floor. Her arms relaxed and hung limp at her sides, letting the book topple over in her lap, and she sat motionless. One of her feet protruded from her skirt, and the leaping firelight illumined it ruddily. It was a graceful foot in an old shoe which had been re-soled and patched. It seemed very still, that patched shoe, as if it might stay still forever. Hedrick knew that Laura had not fainted, but he wished she would move her foot. He went away. He went into the owl room again, and stood there silently a long, long time. Then he stole back again toward the library door, but caught a glimpse of that old, motionless shoe through the doorway as he came near. Then he spied no more. He went out to the stable, and, secluding himself in his studio, sat moodily to meditate. Something was the matter. Something had gone wrong. He had thrown a bomb which he had expected to go off with a stupendous bang, leaving him, as the smoke cleared, looking down in merry triumph, stinging his fallen enemies with his humour, withering them with satire, 
and inquiring of them how it felt now they were getting it but he was decidedly untriumphant he wished laura had moved her foot and that she hadn't that patch upon her shoe he could not get his mind off that patch he began to feel very queer it seemed to be somehow because of the patch if she had worn a new pair of shoes that morning yes it was that patch thirteen is a dangerous age nothing is more subtle the boy inspired to play the man is beset by his own relapses into childhood and hedrick was near a relapse by and by he went into the house again to the library laura was not there but he found the fire almost smothered under heaping ashes she had burned her book he went into the room where the piano was and played the girl on the saskatchewan with one finger then went out to the porch and walked up and down whistling cheerily after that he went upstairs and asked miss pierce how his father was feeling received a non-committal reply looked in at cora's room saw that his mother was lying asleep on cora's bed and cora herself examining the contents of a dressing-table drawer and he withdrew a moment later he stood in the passage outside laura's closed door listening there was no sound he retired to his own chamber found it unbearable and fascinated by laura's returned thither and after standing a long time in the passage knocked softly on the door laura he called in a rough and careless voice it's kind of a pretty day outdoors if you've had your nap if i was you i'd go out for a walk there was no response i'll go with you he added if you want me to he listened again and heard nothing then he turned the knob softly the door was unlocked he opened it and went in laura was sitting in a chair with her back to a window her hands in her lap she was staring straight in front of her he came near her hesitatingly and at first she did not seem to see him or even to know that she was not alone in the room then she looked at him wonderingly and as he stood beside her lifted her right hand and set it gently upon his head hedrick she said was it you that took my book to all at once he fell upon his knees hid his face in her lap and burst into loud and passionate sobbing End of chapter 19